this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanandan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And you have said that to me a hundred times. Yes, that is right. This is our 100th episode. Happy birthday to us. Um, I can't believe that you and I have been doing this since the fall of 2017. When we taped our first episode, you were in Berlin. That seems an unbelievably long time ago. I just remember navigating all those time zones, um, being on wildly different schedules and trying to talk to you. And back then, Trump had been in office for 10 months, and we aired our first episode with Britt Bennett and Matt Gallagher about Colin Kaepernick and the politics of kneeling. And Trump's not really in the rearview mirror yet, at least not far enough for me. He probably never will be far enough in the rearview mirror for me. But we still have some things to celebrate. So what kind of party are we throwing for our 100th? Okay, well... I got some water guns. I went down to the dime store in Brookside and got some water balloons. Bouncy house, get, bouncy house. I get, I get, I usually get like something that makes a fart noise, different kinds of whoopee cushions, anything you want. I, I, those all are at the Brookside Toy and Science where I've been shopping for toys ever since I was seven. Um, other than, oh, and you can get a lot of model rockets there are cool. Have you ever had a model rocket? I have not had a model rocket. I'm starting to get the feeling we had very different childhoods. They are the best thing ever. <laughs> Um, and they go really high and they have a parachute and they come, it comes out. It's like a firecracker except for controlled. Anyway, I thought that for our 100th birthday or anniversary or whatever you want to call it, it would be great to talk about the major themes the Fiction Nonfiction podcast has covered over those first four years and give out some awards just to give everyone a teaser. And we will talk to a great guest, Jabari Asim, in the second half of the show. But first, I want to open up just a little space to talk with you. This was a big experiment for both of us when we started thinking about creating this show back in 2017. And, you know, we're going to talk about the topics that are important to us and thus to the show over the past 100 episodes. But one thing we don't talk a lot about on the show is our working relationship, which right now, correct me if I'm wrong, is pretty good. Um... But it hasn't always been that way. There were things we argued about, things that we had to learn to work to do together. So what surprised you most about having to work with some random guy from Kansas City? We'll accept good and bad answers. Well, I mean, maybe um, I don't know if I'm allowed to work this into my answer, but I think um, one thing I learned from was your understanding of the podcast format. I think when we started the show, I wasn't I listened to podcasts, but you really listened to podcasts and you had a lot of opinions about which ones you thought were good. And um, you were also very relentless and are relentless, I think, about <laughs> the time. Um, you were like, we will come out every every two goddamn weeks. We, we will. And we really have. You know, I went back to figure out it was sort of on me to figure out which episode was the 100th. And when I went back to look at our little roster of episodes, there were maybe one or two times in four years where we had taken a break. That's a lot of, that's like very few breaks. I mean, that's, that's fewer breaks than our, certainly our academic jobs. Um, and you promised me that there would be kind of a payoff to that and that, that the regularity of that was important, both for us to like develop the content and a process and to develop an audience. And I think you were right about that. Um, but yeah, for sure. Like when I first was like, yeah, I'll do a podcast with you. And I met you at a funeral for our teacher who we both loved. Um, a lot of people were like, Sui, that is a really, that's quite the podcast origin story. It is. <laughs> it is a very strange podcast origin story. And, um, 
I, I, I have a lot of faith in my own gambling instincts, I think. And I'm, that, I was right. Okay, so that's really interesting when you say gambling instincts, because the thing that I wrote down, and, you know, when I prep for these episodes, I have a, I have a notebook. I don't think I've ever shown you this because we never do it in the same place, but this is like my, it says podcast 2021 on it. But I wrote down, um, trust my gut. That was the thing that I learned was like, I just felt like, I don't know why I thought that you would be a good partner. Well, there are some reasons that I think about them. Like we had the same, we had gone to Iowa. We had similar friends, even though they didn't, we didn't know each other. And we'd had James McPherson as a, as a teacher in common. And so that's like kind of like references that perhaps we would get along together and, and, and view things at least similarly. But I also just something instinctually, just like you said, you know, made me think like this would be, the chemistry here would be good. And that's extremely important. And it totally was true. And I don't know, that means maybe it's Malcolm Gladwell's whole blink thing. Like, you know, I don't, I always kind of think Malcolm Gladwell's slightly full of it, but uh, maybe that's it. You know, like there's a lot of unconscious decision-making that's going on when you're trying to decide if you can work with someone. And for me, all of those things immediately fell into place. I don't really know why. The other thing was that you just, I mean, it was a really good idea for a podcast, which sort of suggested to me that you would continue to have a lot of really good ideas, which has also been true. You're good at coming up with distinctive angles and stuff for the show and sort of returning to that kind of journalistic way of thinking um, on a regular basis was really rewarding. And um, yeah, trusting, trusting my gut has not always been my strong suit, but I think also trusting my gut and also doing things as opposed to not doing things I wanted to have. I wanted to say yes. And so like, sometimes I'm looking for reasons to say no. And the fact that I was looking for reasons to say yes, also sort of suggested to me that it would be a product I would enjoy. I think I totally underestimated the amount of work that it was, which is, but I, when have I, when have I not underestimated the amount of work something would be? Um, And I think I also like, didn't really anticipate all of the ways in which it would be rewarding. It is rewarding. I would say one of the most rewarding things has been finding another friend that I could have in the literary world and our friendship is in a, has become over four years really important to me when we have arguments you know i think we both get really upset as if a friend was getting was was angry with us and we don't want them to be um and so you know that one of the reasons that a thing i love about writing is meeting other writer friends and this has allowed me to develop a friendship later in life i'm in 53 you know that i don't it's, everyone comments on it's harder to make friends when you get older. And so this friendship to me has been super great. And it, and in a way, it's now more important than older literary friendships I have with people whom I don't get to talk to. for any. I don't have a reason to talk to every two weeks or to work with on something. And so I have to compliment you on a bunch of things that I enjoy about working with you. You're very responsible. It is hard to be responsible. There's no way to do this podcast without trusting that if someone's going to do something, they're going to do it. And if they don't, there's going to be a reason why, a good reason why they didn't do it. You know, uh, um, you have to feel like there's a an equal division of labor. Um, and I have a weakness of getting pissed off if I think somebody's not holding up their end of the bargain. And I've never, when we've argued, it's sometimes been about that. And I've been wrong every single time. So like, you know, like when I think like, Sugi's not doing this. And then you'll be like, I am doing this. I am. You should do this. You know, and that those are the kinds of arguments that we would have. So when we had little, when we had arguments, right. And I, and every time it was because I didn't trust that you were doing the work and you always have done the work. And I appreciate that. And I feel like I can totally rely on you, which in my Adult working life is not always the case. I think all of us recognize that there are, there are not as many people that you can rely on as you think are going to be 
reliable uh, in your life, and I feel like you're really fair-minded and that you have a clear moral compass. Um, and, you know, the one, the best thing that I feel like you've suggested for the podcast is you've said, yeah, we want, and we're going to talk about diverse diversity in our guests later on, but you said, like, I don't, I won't, I don't want to ask, always ask people to talk about something that they're expected to talk about. You know, like you, because you felt like, well, I always get asked to review the book by this South Asian writer, you know. Um, but I know a lot about a lot of other things. I know about journalism. I could, you know, like that sort of stuff. And and so that way of thinking about our guests, thinking about their identity, but also not always asking them to do things that are in correlation with what their identity is supposed to be publicly, right, was really smart, useful idea for the podcast. So um, anyway, those are the things that, that I remember. Do you remember us having arguments, though? I remember getting upset. Yeah, and it was like, I mean, a lot of it was like people's expectations and understanding of time. And when we had started doing the show, we did it all, all the time on weekdays. And I remember early on, we didn't plan that much in advance. I was always worried that we were going to have a show that was going to be like, hey, here we are. That's um, this show. Yeah, that's this show. And um, I think we've also been really lucky. Um, you know, you've introduced me to a lot of great writers, like some of whom were your friends and some of whom were just, um, you know, a result of your like pretty excellent taste. Like I, you know, I don't think I was... I had read some of David Means's work before he was on the show, but you were like, I want to have David Means on the show. I love his work. I don't know him. I'm just going to write him. And I was like, that's great. It really has helped the way that I think about teaching. I have like a greater mental library of references. And I think also sometimes, right, when we personally know someone, we do know that they can talk about something that they aren't frequently asked to talk about. So then we get to have them on to talk about that. And, um, so meeting people who are old friends of yours, um, or people whose work you wanted to highlight on the show has, I think, been really educational for me. And I think that, um, again, like coming up with the fun ideas, um, and also like sort of like the, I guess some of the other, uh, like you always wanted, you, you don't want to plan that much in advance, but you also want to do a lot of prep, which is like a really <laughs> weird combination. So I like, don't want to do a lot of prep. Like you wanted to write, like we write for listeners who might not know this, you know, when we have someone on, we write, um, our scripts in advance. And Whitney has like a whole way that like, he thinks about the arc of the questions and he taught me how to do this. And that was also super helpful. And at first I was like, can't we just talk, th- talk to the guests? And it's true that if you do that, it turns into like, I don't know. Um, mush. Like it wouldn't, yeah, it turns into mush. And so I think I both started to appreciate like the value of writing the script. And I was also like, please don't make me do this at the last minute. It'll really stress me out. Um, so balancing those things I think has been, helpful writing the scripts has been really educational. And you also, like, I think I often kind of like want to get lost in the writerly weeds. And you're like, we also need perhaps to revisit the basics of this topic for our listeners who might not know. Um, And so your insistence on including those framing questions at the beginning, I think has built strong foundations for our conversations to be accessible while still being intelligent. We call those the the dummy questions that are my job to (laughs) ask. (laughs) I mean... Well, I have to, I mean, I would say exactly the same thing, Sugi, and, and uh, about the guests that you brought on who were, who were writers that I didn't know but had uh, read or admired, like Britt Bennett, you know, and Gia Tolentino. Those are two early guests of ours. And Claire Bay Watkins, I mean, you, I think you booked all three of those guests, and those were really interesting writers to me that I was already interested in. And so that has been a consistent, you're really good at booking guests, and you've booked some great, 
people on the show. And so the problem with guests, though, I think this is the most stressful thing is like the booking of the guest, right? And <laughs> why aren't guests more reliable? Why are some... <laughs> Some guests are very reliable. I mean, they're and they're all. Everyone who's been on the show has been lovely. People's time, time works in different ways. No, for the so ones many we're people. talking about are the ones who have not been on the show. Those are the ones <laughs> that are the ones that make us sweat and cry and roll around on the floor. Because Will they, they show don't up? Answer, Will they emails. answer emails. You don't know what they're doing. They, you you can't reach them. We stalk them on Facebook. Well, they posted. Maybe they're not going to answer the email. Like that sort of. That's the bad. We situation. never do that, by the way. We never no, do what Whitney's describing. It's, is it's definitely a story that I wrote. Um, there have definitely been moments of like a little bit looking in the magic eight ball to guess what the guest might be doing or thinking and how we can best make that person comfortable. Um, and there's also the desire to make sure the guests are diverse, which I think is something that we've both worked really hard to achieve. Like that was one of my major goals coming into the show, both in terms of gender and race and sexual orientation and gender identity. I guess that's not a both, but rather in everything. Um, and has been something that we were really focused on from early on. Yeah. And I look when I'm looking back and as we did to prepare for this episode, back through all of those episodes, looking at our guests. Um, I feel like it was a useful conversation. And I think like to say, as we did so many times and with students, cause we have, we have worked with students over the years that have been part of a podcasting class that I teach at UMKC. And we've had students from the University of Minnesota who have been interns. Um, when we talk about guests with them and they're like, well, how about these two people? And we're like, well, they're both men. Could you find, you know, how about if we, you know, found a woman who could also speak to this topic or those writers are both white. You know, what if we, how are we going to complicate that lineup, you know, and having those conversations directly as part of an editorial meeting is important. I mean, it's not going to happen by magic. You have to be intentional about what you're doing if you want to have a diverse group of guests. Yeah. And sometimes the students have been really helpful in that also in generating names that we wouldn't, like, we don't necessarily know or they're reading differently than we are. And so actually working with your students has been um, really fun. And having students from here work on the show has also been great and has helped with that kind of diversity. Um, and yeah, I think that, you know, I feel like we talk about this every single week. I do remember even, yeah, early on having a very marathon conversation with you on the phone where like um, my fiance went out of the apartment and then came back and he's like, he had gone out like a long errand and he was like, you are still on the phone with Whitney. And I was like, I, I 100% I he'd like gone and like gone on like a, a tour of the town and, and returned to find me um, in that same conversation. But I think it has paid off. What were we trying to book a guest or, or trying to decide who to ask for a particular episode? Do you remember what the conversation was about? We were having a philosophical conversation about race. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, we had a lot of those. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right, so, but what about diversity in political viewpoint? Are you asking if we should have had a Trumper on the show? <laughs> I, I'm really not. I mean, what would we have done, right? I mean, I think as we've clearly documented on the, on the podcast, which would never have needed to be documented on a podcast prior to this sort of moment in American history, like pro-authoritarian forces uh, don't need a lot of airtime or any more than they're already getting on places like Fox or OAN or Newsmax, you know? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I do not come from the school of, quote-unquote, both sides need to be heard here. Um, I am not for whatabouty in 
basically feel like it's a subvariant of fuckery in general. So, <laughs> um, I yeah. The well, but there have been. I when I think about political variation within the podcast, I do think there is a lot of variation within the left. I think we've had like someone like Bill Fletcher or Chavisa Woods on who were you know our progressive Bernie supporters, you know. And I think we've had much more centrist, um, Democratic, you know, centrist, conservative, or even conservative Democrats on to talk about stuff. I feel like there's been a fairly wide distribution of stuff there. And it's not always stuff that I agree with. I mean, I, I, you know, I voted for Bernie in the primaries, but that wasn't always the kind of people that we talked to. This isn't really a Bernie podcast. No, I mean, I think we had it. Yeah, we had a range of folks. You know, Garrett Graff was Howard Dean's first webmaster back in the day. No, I did not know that. Um, That's interesting. And Rebecca Solnit came on and spoke about um, Elizabeth Warren, if I'm remembering correctly. Do we have anyone who really liked Biden? (laughs) Come to the virtual book channel to see my facial expression. (laughs) No, we did not. Why do you think that is? Look, I'm glad he won the election. I am. And I also think... I don't think that, like, my candidate, Bernie, would necessarily have won that election, given how close that it was. Do you? Yeah, I mean, not necessarily. I'm grateful for so many of the ways in which he shifted the conversation leftward. Um, So many major ideas um, that are even part of, like, regular Democratic Party discourse now originated, you know, they were originally discussed as though they were far left-wing, radical, socialist ideas. Um, And they're really not. Um, But, yeah, I think that... Biden, I don't know. I think I, for all that he, it's very easy for people to do sort of an imitation of Biden, you know, like this folksy dude from Delaware rides the Amtrak, um, all of that. Um, But to me, he seemed like a bit of a cipher, like a vessel for other people's, like other people's campaign ideas flowed toward him and he seemed capable of containing them, perhaps. He wasn't exciting enough to kind of like, um, like I was never, like I can get 100% behind that, this dude. I I mean, I hope that he can get done what needs to get done. I mean, I'm also like so happy that he was elected as opposed to the other horrific alternative. But um, yeah. It's a very strange situation, you know, politically where you feel like, okay, we narrowly, like the, we narrowly avoided some kind of terrible disaster, but um is this, inter- is this going to be just an interregnum where like the forces of authoritarianism are just going to come back stronger in the next election? You know, and, 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 you know, Biden's age is a problem. You don't see like, where is the future there, right? For the Democratic Party is a little bit harder to see for me. He's, he's a, seems like a throwback rather than a move forward. Um, all right. So we can't rehash the entire 2020 election right now. Um, I want to talk about the Fiction Nonfiction Awards. Your idea. A very interesting well, idea. It's do you hard. not like this idea? No, I like this idea. It's hard. It involves judgment. I'm very good at being judgy. <laughs> it might piss people off, um, but making choices is a way of generating discussion. Wouldn't it be great if there was somebody around sitting around going, I did not win a Fiction Nonfiction Award. Boy, does that make <laughs> me so mad. I have an idea for what we should call these awards. Should I be happy or terrified? I think we should call them the nannies. Huh? <laughs> huh? Okay. 
<laughs> so you got something better? I do not have anything better. I guess we can go with that. Um, but whatever we call them, our first and honestly most important nani will be the Shashank Morley uh, We Don't Need No Education Award. This is given to the topic area that was most relevant to the fiction nonfiction podcast and thus the world over the past four years. Uh, the nominees are all up on our website under the Buy Topic for Educators tab, thanks to our former intern, Shashank Morley, who is a student at the University of Minnesota. You should all visit this tab, by the way, especially, obviously, if you're an educator. If you, it's sort of a, if you liked this episode of the podcast, you might also want to assign this one um, kind of scenario. And they are, drumroll please, COVID-19, climate change, industry insider, race, and gender and sexuality. Is there anything there that you would like to add? I mean, I think those are, I understand why we group those on the website in that way. And I think that makes sense to me. Um, I would add, the only thing that I would add, sorry, you can hear me paging through my notes, um, is that I think like authoritarianism was something that we did a good job of covering and that uh, you know, we wrote about authoritarianism and the forces of authoritarianism rising in Sri Lanka, in India, in Poland, in the United States, in Myanmar, and in Hong Kong. Um, that's a lot of episodes, you know, and and a lot of the Trump-related stuff was really sort of about authoritarianism and what it meant and how he was impersonating, not impersonating, but adopting sort of ideas of authoritarianism that you know, this wasn't clear from the beginning of his presidency that that's what was going on or that it was linked up to other countries. I mean, when we did that uh, episode with Steve Yarbrough about the rise of authoritarianism in Poland, mm -hmm. which was fairly early on, I had no idea. And I found that one of the most scary episodes to that we did because I had not, I did not understand that this movement was happening already. And in a, in a country as large as Poland and recently democratic. And, you know, you learned about, oh, the same thing's happening in Hungary. And that started to feel like a growth of a movement that I don't think is over. And so I feel like that was one of, I don't know that that's the most important topic, but I would include that in our group. Yeah, that makes sense. I also was thinking about, I don't know if this exactly falls under that umbrella, but your friend Tom Frank came on the show a couple times and talked about populism, which connected to my understanding of authoritarianism in interesting ways. I found that episode to be really illuminating um, to think about the ways and the meanings of populism being inverted over time through through history and the ways that Trump was and wasn't a populist in the original way was that was surprising to me um, but yeah I think and of course like doing the Sri Lanka related one we got to have some amazing reporters on the show um, which I was so happy about. I, I, I mean, the show obviously features a lot of fiction writers, um, poets, but then I think pairing that with reporters and letting the reporters who don't often get to talk about their thoughts on craft in the same way that, you know, talking about craft is the bread and butter of creative writing a lot of the time. And, and I don't know that journalists get invited to talk about that sort of stuff on a show like ours that often. And so making space for that, I learned a lot about how, I might think about writing about authoritarianism or um, race and gender or, um, you know, leaderless movements like the one in Hong Kong. I remember Javi Hernandez um, talking about what it meant to try to write about a movement that was trying very self-consciously to not have like an icon at its head um, and to think about those ideas and apply them to fiction. 
that has been really satisfying for me, almost regardless of which topic we were talking about. I found that I was able to take that away from almost everyone. But I think, um, like, what do you think was the most covered or most important well, I mean, we had a lot of episodes like uh, there was a Dennis Smith episode that was really good about like living under quarantine that I that I liked. We've had Nathaniel Rich to talk about climate change and oh my god, is it Juliana Spar? Yeah, exactly. Her? The poet okay. Juliana Spar. Her episode was really good. I loved Emily Rabito's stuff, yeah. Yeah, that's who I was thinking of, right. But I still think like you know, the thing that this 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 podcast is signature talked about is like race and American society and race and how it affects the way people write. We've talked about it in the publishing industry. We've talked about it in policing. We've talked about it from the very first episode, you know, which was about Colin Kaepernick, you know, all the way up through our last episode with Adam Serwer. And so the fact that this podcast comes out of, in fact, our friendship with and and learning from James Allen McPherson, and this is something that Jim was always constantly talking about as the the centrality, if you want to understand American society, you got to think about it in terms of race. Um, I feel like that, to me, is our biggest through line. I would agree with that. And I guess we'll talk to Jabari about this a little bit um, shortly. But yeah, I think that... So yeah, that's why Jabari's coming on, because we already decided that this was the yes. winning category. There's a little false suspense here. We've This is what we want. <gasps> this is what we think is the one. Behind the, behind the curtain. They won. There is no wizard. <laughs> okay, I have another Nani. Um, our next nominee is the Richard Preston Terrifyingly Accurate Prediction Award. Richard Preston came on our show to talk about COVID in early 2020, and he said this. If the virus should come to the United States or to anywhere, um, I rather think that it's going to be something like a bad flu. Uh, I don't, we're not talking about something that's going to cause a breakdown of society or the end of the world. I really don't see that coming at all. But uh, I see the possibility of a new and perhaps entrenched human disease that we can't get rid of now, now that it's gotten into us, except through vaccination. So uh, what do you do in a situation like that? Well, I think you do self-quarantine. If you can stay at home, if you've got enough to live on, that's what you do when the plague is going around. That's what they did in London in 1665 during the Great London Plague. Um, people stay at home and the cities of the streets of the city become empty and quiet um, in a time of plague, just as the streets of Wuhan now are quiet. Uh, I don't know whether or not the streets of New York will go quiet um, if coronavirus comes around, Uh, but it's something that I think we all kind of have to keep in mind, which is the continuity of human history and uh, the, the, basic, the basic thing, which is the human condition. And despite all of the science that we have, all of the medicine that we have, in the face of an emerging virus, something new coming out of nature, for which we have no vaccine and no treatment, we are reduced to simply um, a collection of human bodies with no more protection for us than doctors in the 19th century had for diseases like tuberculosis. Um, Well, holy shit, that definitely qualifies as a terrifying and accurate prediction. I remember being totally blown away by um, basically everything Richard said, and I was already horrified 
Um, but since the award is named for Richard, he can't win. So these are the um, somewhat arbitrarily determined rules of the nanny. Well, if, uh, if the award's <laughs> named for you, you've already won. <laughs> um, so who are your nominees? Well, okay. I have one that might sound a little surprising to you, but this was a, something that, that Sana Krasikov said in an early episode on November 16th, 2017. From It's our fourth episode from season one. Our attempt to try to delegitimize an unpopular president by saying that Russia kind of caused him to um, triumph. To me, that that's sort of the other side of the conspiracy thinking coin. Even if they did all those things, like nobody... Nobody forced people to go into the voting booths and vote the way they did. I mean, that that's on us. Like, if we want to reckon with our choices, then we have to reckon with our choices. Yeah. Um, the other thing that Sana said that might qualify her for the terrifyingly accurate prediction award, she talked about interior alienation, kind of like giving up mm. on your society and what that would mean for people. I feel like we're seeing interior alienation in my state right now because we're having a giant COVID spike in the, despite the fact that vaccines are available for everyone and just people just don't want to do it for some reason. Yeah, I think that like everything that she said in that episode and Sana, Sana is an Iowa classmate of mine um, and just like her canniness and political analysis and understanding of people's ability to lie to themselves about things like that. Um, I just felt like that was, yeah, she was so on. Well, the reason I chose her quote, though, is because at the time, that Russia thing, you know, this was before uh, uh, Trump was impeached, right? Uh, and so she is saying, like, this is a dead end. We need to talk about why people really voted this way. And that turned out to be have a lot to do with race and a lot of the stuff that we've talked about. And I think that is now the consensus. And I don't think that the that people look back and think, oh, the the the, the election was stolen by the Russians. I think that's gone now. And I think she was right about that. I agree that the ele- like we have to reckon with our choices. I do also think that the Republican willingness to look away from the very clear signs of Russian interference are evidence of GOP moral bankruptcy. And it's an important piece in like a very large puzzle. Um, but it's a large piece. And so I, yeah, I remember just sort of like, right. I don't know. I'm not sort of of the like Rocky four red Dawn, like red scare. I mean, yes, I grew up in the 1980s. I watched all those movies, but like, I'm not, I don't know. I'm not in it to like, just, um, sort of revive that anti-Russia bandwagon. Like I'm not interested in that, but I also think like, how can you look away from the evidence of what really happened? Right. Like that was a Senate intelligence committee report run by Republicans. And then like the majority of the party like looked away from it. So I agree that like, it's not, that is Russians are not the rot at the center of our society. That's definitely true. But willingness to look away from clear evidence of foreign, foreign interference in our elections is evidence of the rot in our society. Like people will do anything. People will do anything to like hang on to that power, including ignoring something that's very obviously against the national interest. Fair enough. I get that. I think that's a good point. All right, here's my other nominee. And this comes from C. Riley Snorton, who was a guest of uh, of ours in um, uh, March 7th, 2019. This is not so much like a terrifying prediction, but it's an interesting prediction. If we think about the transitive use of a verb in grammar, 
it refers to a verb that requires a direct object to fix its meaning. Right. So while on one hand, you know, trans can often mean, you know, uh, it, trans often invokes a form of movement, you know, from one thing to, from one place to the next, uh, you know, passing into a different kind of condition. But I also was very invested in thinking about when we look at trans, what needs to be put in place in order for us to understand that something trans is happening. Um, and that's how I was really thinking about blackness and transness as working together. Namely that um, the, uh, the kind of ungendering of blackness in uh, the antebellum period of the U.S. gives us a sense of this um, lack of anatomical and symbolic coherence. It also gives us a sense of the mutability of gender. That's a complicated quote. C. Riley is an academic and speaks in academic terms, but that idea of connecting transness to blackness and the way that that was done in that episode, I thought, was really important and interesting and made me think about the way that we're going to think about gender in the future in, in, in different ways. Yeah, I think that was a really strong episode. And I was going to say, like, I mean, I should have mentioned academics before among the very valuable categories of guests that we've had. I mean, I think that wasn't necessarily part of our original conception. And we eventually did invite guests from academia on. And I feel like it really enriched discussion in ways that I found valuable. Um, yeah, C. Really Snorton was, was a great nominee. So do we have to pick a winner? Well, do you have any nominees or am I doing this all by myself? <laughs> um, in terms of terrifyingly accurate predictions, um, We've often asked our guests to make predictions. It's often been a way that we have ended the show. And, um, like, what do you think lies ahead for your topic? And often people have been like, well, what can I say? Bleakness, despair. And, like, often when they've said that, they've been right. And, like, a lot of the ones, a lot of the ones about authoritarianism, um, like Mira Srinivasan, I would nominate Mira for canny political analysis of a rising nationalism in South Asia, right? Like when she came on the show, that was pre-pandemic and we have seen, we saw nationalism play out in the pandemic response, right? We saw that taking just a grotesque, like it's just a horrific toll that's going on even now. So I think she would be one of my nominees for sure. The other one would probably be, um, well, I don't know that it's, can I nominate Jabari when he's going to come on? I feel like it's a spoiler, but, um, like, there were a lot of folks who, like, I would sort of be like, has progress been made? And they would be like, ah, rein it in there. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, anytime someone was, you'd be sort of like, has has the needle moved? And they'd be like, very, very, very slightly. So, actually, um, in addition to Jabari, I'll say Aisha Pandey, who came on um, for an Industry Insider episode and talked about racism. Like, that was an episode that was very close to my heart and that I spent a lot of time thinking about. And I I knew a lot of what Aisha might say before she came on. I had my suspicions, and then she came on and said it. And it was like a little like a dagger of accuracy. But she mentioned this idea that, okay, you might think that there are more opportunities for writers of color now, but there already has been a cycle like this that happened, and then all of it dried up and went away. And so I don't know that you can view that as like, you know, the arc of history bending toward justice in this place. Yeah. And like another way to think about like, like SJ Sindhu came on and and spoke about how uh, it's very difficult as a writer to be considered as an entire person, as having multiple identities, you know, being South Asian and queer 
and, you know, what else? And, like, maybe you're a South Asian and queer and disabled or black and trans. And um, and so to occupy multiple categories, the publishing industry and marketing don't always have ways to talk about that. And then I was thinking about that when A Quick Amazing was recently, um, their book came out, um, their new book, Dear Sandarin, which is a memoir, uh, a black spirit memoir. And it talks about um, being an embodied god, um, as I understand. And so they were they were saying, you know, their previous books had been marked by identity categories that they felt did not necessarily pertain to them. Um, and I thought of Cindy was someone who was able to, I don't know if that counts as predicting, but able to name something ahead of when other people were necessarily talking about it in the same way. I think like probably not totally alone, but I appreciated the way that she articulated that. All right, so we, we, we have to just say who we are going to vote for. Who, who would you vote for of those nominees? I like what you said about Sana. I think you might have convinced me. All right, I'll go with Sana too. All right, Sana Krasikov. Yes. Winner of the inaugural Nani. <laughs> she, gets, <laughs> she gets a candy bar. <laughs> all right, this is the most important Nani of all. This is the Gail, Miles, Moss, and Lulu Levy Terrell why can't everyone interrupt Whitney as easily as we do award and is given to the guest who could best interrupt me or the guest who best resisted your interrupting who was, them who just, was impervious to just, interruption who just filibustered you um and i would nominate um jane coaston who as i recall um proceeded and yes. also gish jen who who is the winner uh, Yes, I think, I think that I cannot. Um, I love Gish. Uh, the next Nani I have on the list is the Gordon Lish Award for the guest most able to make me speak in short, conclusive sentences. Another easy, we don't need any other nominations, Madeline Miller. Oh, really? And I'll tell you why, because we did that interview with her about her fantastic novel, Circe, live in front of an audience. And when you're live in front of an audience, you speak shorter. Oh, fascinating. I feel like I'm in podcast therapy. <laughs> <laughs> That's all. It's just like there's something about the audience. Okay. I don't know what it is, but it's different. Okay. Um, all right. So those were easy awards to give out. We'll send them their candy bars. I don't know what kind. Nestle's maybe. Um, and now we have the ever popular with you and me, James Allen McPherson Memorial Guest Who Actually Read Our Books Award. These are not always the same people, so I guess we could nominate the guests who read your books and the guests who read my books. And I'm kind of curious, like, do you feel like as podcast, the one thing that's been different I sometimes think is like, I worry, I don't know if this is true. Do you think people see us as, stop seeing us as writers and start seeing us as podcast hosts because we're on doing podcasts all the time and, you know, we don't publish a book as often as we do podcasts? I don't know. I mean, I think... Um... I have, I'm not sure. I like, I guess I didn't, I have tried not to worry about that because I can't control it. And as a general policy, I attempt to not worry about things I can't control. But um, I don't know. I think like we ask questions that are driven by interests that arise out of our own work. I also feel like sometimes we bring up our work and people are like, oh, you wrote a book. <laughs> we legitimately surprise guests by bringing up the fact that, oh, Sugi wrote this book, Love Marriage. Oh, really? Oh, <laughs> I didn't. Yeah. There's this, but this, there's is, like this a is how, like, yeah. silence on the other end. Yeah, we're going to just move on because I didn't know that. 
I think that, um, yeah, and but then, you know, we bring on, um, like, say, Marianne Mohanraj or Estre Sindhu or Mothangi Subramanian or Mira Srinivasan um, or, yeah, you know, like Javier Hernandez. Those are those are people who I feel like definitely had read were unfamiliar with your work, which I really appreciate. I would say the same thing. And, and you'll, again, these are like my friends, right? So, you know, Tracy K. Smith or Chang Ray Lee or Margot Livesey, Tom Frank. Jess Rao, Gerald Walker, all, all, you know, those are people who I feel like are reciprocal, really reciprocal in a, in, a, in a way that I appreciate. Yeah. And I think like, you know, I remember after she was on the show, Sarah Paretsky, um looked up our work and like, you know, wrote me like such a nice note. Which was um, super nice. She it was wins. so nice. Yeah, she was really great. We were, she was like a dream. You were like, I would love to have Sarah Paretsky on. You'd say it like once a month. Um, and it was such a thrill to have her and then to discover that she was also such a kind person. And now the Tiari Jones, I can't believe we landed this guest, Nani Award. I wish that I could say it was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar because we almost landed Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I still want to have him on the show. It's the dream is not dead. The dream is not dead. Well, Sarah Paretsky, I would mention Marlon James and Daniel Jose Older, but I don't know if we get credit for that because they were booked as part of like a literary festival in Minneapolis. We didn't really like land them. Thank you, Steph Opitz. Um, and um, I would say I would have to nominate Candace Bushnell. We had one of your students who just like cold wrote Candace Bushnell, which was awesome. And Candace Bushnell was like, yes, I will be on the fiction nonfiction podcast. And yes, um, if I could, if, if the sound of my jaw dropping had a sound, um, yeah, that was, that would be my nominee. Um, Edwige Dantica. Yeah. Um, I was, I was like, I cannot believe she's going to be on the show. <laughs> well, I, I had been, this is back in the old days um, when we could go to other countries. Uh, I had been in France. My, my, my wife teaches a, a study abroad program for UMKC. I had gone and spoken at the NYU program in Paris um, and had met Edwige Dantica, who was doing the same thing, and had asked her you know, about being on the show. And then, then we wrote her and she, she did it. I, and I asked her, sitting on a barge in the Seine, uh, which is the this cool end of semester thing that the NYU program does. And I got to do, because I happened to be there at that time, um, drinking champagne. Whitney's life is hard, folks. <laughs> <laughs> it was the last, definitely the last time I was on a barge drinking champagne. Um, uh, I still, I vote for Candace Bushnell. Yeah, that was just, I mean, because it didn't even come from either one of us. It was just like, it was like your, yeah, it was, it was wild. Um, your student was like, uh, Candace Bushnell emailed me back or like her people emailed me back. And we were just like, wow. Okay. Um, so who would we most want to book in the future? Do we, do you have a dream episode or dream guest? I feel like we have both talked about Stephen King. Yeah. Wouldn't that be awesome? I would actually, um, I've probably talked about this to a lot of people. I don't know if I've ever discussed it. I'm like, a, I'm like a big fan of Tabitha King, um, Stephen oh. King's wife, and I would be hugely excited to, um, when I was like a teenager, one of my favorite novels was by Tabitha King. It was a basketball novel, which I just read endlessly. Um, and they, like the King family has, Susan, Susan Dominus wrote this great New York Times Magazine story about like the King family and their writing and all their references to each other. It'd be mm. super fun to interview them together. He would be a great guest. Um, I would love to talk to him about horror and about accessibility and writing about music um, do you know who I would also like to have on? Because um, I am friends with Kevin Wilmot, who is a screenwriter here at KU, uh, who wrote the screenplay 
um, for Black Klansman. And he has worked a lot with Spike Lee. And I think it'd be really fun to have Spike Lee on. With Kevin Wilmot? Yeah. Yes. I'm available. Yes, I'm I mean, available. No way I'm available happen, to tape this episode. But... Yes. I want to have Colson Whitehead on. Oh, yeah. We could actually get Colson Whitehead, I think. Yeah, Jesse. I would like to have Yeah, Jesse on. I would like to have, like, yeah. Um, and they're, yeah. And then so many of our guests have been wonderful to come multiple times. Like, Alex Chi has joined us a couple times. Um, Oscar Villon. So, uh, finally, for viewers of our YouTube channel and IDTV videos, we have the Sue Monk Kid. Uh, what is that in the background, Nani? Yeah, that's because if you see our video, Sue Monk Kid has the best writer background of all. Very beautiful, immaculate bookshelves that I've put together like my like own bullshit facsimile of them here, but they're not nearly as nice. Um, but I did that after seeing hers, and I was like, oh, my God. If we get my ba-. I was, like, hunched in. It was when we were first starting to do video, and I was, like, hunched in my bedroom, and the shadows were all weird, and my the, the, the camera was angular, was pointed into the angle of the wall and not the, the flat wall, and it just it looked terrible. And uh, all of us have been trying to figure out our backgrounds. You've, like, totally changed your background several times. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, I didn't have a consistent space in my house, and now I'm in a closet. Like, I'm in a walk-in closet. Here's the confession. Um, it is a very it's stylish not a sound studio. walk-in closet. Um, my dog not only knows how to open the door and come in, but as we will discover later in the same episode, knows how to, when I bring her in the office to be quiet, she knows how to open the door and leave when she wants to and how to weirdly close the door behind her. I'm going to have to go look at the video replay for that. Um, and then the other person with an awesome background that I always appreciate is Beth Wynn, who has a Keanu, a sequined Keanu pillow behind, like she's immaculate bookshelf. I'm trying to remember if we had Beth on video or not, but she has like an immaculate, um, bookshelf and then the sequined Keanu pillow. So it's like this disruption of the, um, the expectation, uh, Keanu is always with her, uh, which I, I need to, I need to come up with some piece of flair that is like that. Well, now that we've given out all of our wildly, wildly lucrative and prestigious Nani Awards, um, we're going to talk to Jabari Asim. An accomplished poet, playwright, and writer, Jabari Asim has served as the editor-in-chief of Crisis Magazine, the NAACP's flagship journal of politics, culture, and ideas, and as an editor at The Washington Post, where he wrote a syndicated column on politics, popular culture, and social issues. His writing has appeared in Essence, The Baffler, The LA Times, The New York Times, The New Republic, American Prospect, Yale Review, and elsewhere. He's the recipient of a Guggenheim and the author of seven books for adults, including We Can't Breathe, On Black Lives, White Lies, and The Art of Survival, and 11 books for children. His debut book of poems, Stop and Frisk, was published in 2020. Jabari teaches at Emerson College, where he directs the MFA program. Jabari, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Sophie. Glad to be here. How long have you been directing that program? Uh, six years, and I've oh man, and I've been at Emerson eleven years. I'm about to start my twelfth year in the fall. I had my first year of directing our program here, and it is really hard. Yeah. I'm impressed that you've been doing it for that long. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> well, check with me in a year and see how I feel. <laughs> you and Terion Williamson were our guests on a June 2020 episode titled "Black Stories Matter." That was shortly after the police murder of George Floyd and right at the beginning of the uprisings that took place in Minneapolis and around the globe in the wake of that crime. After handing out our 100th episode fiction nonfiction awards earlier, um, before we have you on, had you on, which I'm going to call the I'm, I want to call the nannies, but we've, we're still workshopping that. 
Um, Sugi and I decided that the issues and we discussed in the episode that you were on were probably the most important through line the entire time that we've had this podcast all through the 100 episodes. Yeah, you know, we started our very first episode by listing the names of black men who'd been shot by the police. And the godfather of our show is our former professor, James Allen McPherson, who taught Whitney and I separately um, and, you know, shared many of the same texts with us and taught a lot about the through line of race in American life and history. Which is why we wanted to have you back um, for this 100th episode. And one of the things we talked about when we spoke to you and a lot, and we've talked about with a lot of other guests like Matt Johnson and Britt Bennett and Victor Laval and Dennis Smith, Dwayne Betts, Timothy Yu, um, and most recently Adam Serwer, we talked about narrative and how narrative has represented race and policing. And I wondered, that's something that, you know, we discussed a lot on the, on the, on the episode that you were on. And I wonder if you feel like these norms of narrative and the way we think about narrative and you know, on this particular issue has shifted during the year that passed since you were on the show in a positive or negative way. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, um, I guess one of the operative words there, though, is we, when we talk about, you know, do we look at the narrative differently? I mean, if you look at African-Americans, we've always looked at the, the narrative differently. And as far as mainstream America, it seems to be still very much divided uh, politically. So I, I don't necessarily think that uh, our efforts to shift the narrative have um, really moved the needle as much as would be necessary. Uh, but we are seeing some little indications, for example, in some of the media reports of late. I've seen um, reporters and editors more willing to more willing to say um, racist, for example, as opposed to allegedly racist or alleged racist comments. I'm now with um, growing frequency seeing racist comments labeled merely as racist comments or, or racist behavior. This is this is a small thing, but you know, if you're African American and you've been monitoring this this kind of discourse for some time, you notice these shifts. And that's very different. Um, and it's connected to, I think, partly newsrooms responding to calls for uh, diversity. And, you know, you have to qualify those calls for diversity. We don't just mean reporters of color, we mean people in decision making positions of color and uh, who can who can make a call on a headline, who can make a call on, on a description of behavior or commentary. And I think that's where you're seeing the influence where, um, you know, the narrative is being regarded somewhat differently. Uh, so, you know, small, small indications like that, uh, that there are some changes, but by by no means should those indications be read as, in my view, as a substantial movement of the needle. Yeah, I was listening to the episode that we taped with you last year, and I noticed that you mentioned uh, the date 1619. You didn't specifically reference the 1619 project that Nicole Hannah-Jones led, but you mentioned that date, and I was thinking about how over the past year I've heard that date more and more, and I was trying to decide if I could count that as one of the norms shifting. And, of course, in, in recent days, you know, we've seen Nicole Hannah-Jones um, go through uh, like really racist um, treatment from the board of trustees and a donor at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, where she had initially been recruited for a tenured position, uh, a night chair in in journalism, and you know she decided to go to Howard, um, which is an HBCU. Um, and I just was thinking as I was listening to our previous conversation about all of uh, everything that you'd said about you know kind of who is the audience um, who has access to right? Um, and like, what do those norms mean and who are they for? And, and her sort of dramatic 
um, really profoundly moving decision to go to Howard, at least. I mean, for me, it was, it was sort of like she was saying that she didn't have to, it wasn't her job to fix that norm. Um, yeah, she also had, she also expressed an exhaustion, you know, of um, having to devote so much energy to proving that she belonged uh, in these white spaces and she didn't want to do that anymore. Um, and as a longtime African-American journalist, of course, I can, I can totally uh, relate to that. Uh, the other good side of, of, of her movement to Howard University is that it does shine a worth, a necessary light uh, on the type of journalism that's being developed in places like Howard University, Hampton University, and most notably, I would say Morgan State University in Baltimore, where they have a really world-class um, African-American-led journalism program, and they're turning out uh, really talented people who are going to do that work in terms of shifting the narrative. But of course, the hostility toward Nicole Hannah-Jones you know, really derives from this, um, this fury uh, that she has stirred up by daring to so openly uh, want to uh, change the narrative in terms of the relationship between white supremacy and, and American history. And, of course, we need to point out that, you know, an African-American at the top of the masthead at the New York Times helped make that possible. Uh, there's now an African-American at the top of the masthead at the Los Angeles Times. Uh, people who can make the ultimate call. Uh, so that's that's beginning to happen, uh, but it's all overdue. It's it's so overdue, and so you know I, I don't want us to waste a lot of energy uh, patting ourselves on the back and talking about how far we've come when we have so far to go. From the earliest African American journalists, John Russworm, Frederick Douglass, Ida B. Wells, that's exactly what they were doing. So she, uh, Nicole Anna Jones, is doing wonderful work, um, but really following in their footsteps. And that resistance has always been there. I mean, those journalists met that same resistance. Uh, that she is meeting now, uh, so it's a it's a it's a continuing struggle. So um, last year you said, and and I'm quoting here, the weight of societal custom shapes our portrayals, and I'm curious about how you think the conversations and events of last summer. You know, like we talked to you sort of right at the beginning of um, the uprisings following the murder of George Floyd, and since then many 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 things have happened. Um, I'm curious about how you think the conversations and events of last summer and, and what happened after are beginning to appear in our culture and how important it will be in the long run that Derek Chauvin was convicted and sentenced to jail. Uh, that's, that's a lot, Sugi. <laughs> Crammed it all in there. It's a clown car of a question. Uh, <laughs> we have <yeah>. one minute. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, so, I mean, it's important to note that, you know, shortly after George Floyd uh, was killed. Jacob Blake was shot and left paralyzed by police. So, I mean, there's there's rhetoric and, and then there's there's actual consequences. There's actual changes in, in police behavior. Um, and we're, the, the jury is still very much out on that. And I think that um, it's common sense for African-Americans to regard any hint of, um, of PR in the direction of police becoming more sensitive with healthy skepticism. And so I would say that it's it's very early uh, in terms of the, the post-George Floyd um, period for us to be making large-scale assessments. Uh, I think we just need to be open-eyed and, and continue uh, the struggles to uh, create and implement systems in which police are actually responsible uh, to their alleged constituencies. So last time we were talking about um, cowboy narratives and the way that also people tell stories to let themselves off the hook. And I hope, and maybe this is just an aspirational hope, that one of the things I 
am seeing slightly is narrative, even mainstream narrative, getting messier, less yeah. conclusive, um, more willing to accept a real world in which things are untidy, unfair. Yeah. Um, I think of, you know, like narratives like The Hate You Give, um, which of course had come out before that, but, um, you know, other, other stories like uh, last time we spoke about The Watchmen, um, you know, and Derek Chauvin was convicted. And then as you say, there's, there's such a lack of accountability in so many other ways. Um, this morning I was uh, scrolling through my timeline and I saw a story that was sort of like cop PR about um, a police officer arresting a DoorDash driver, but then completing his order. And I was like, I don't care. Right. I, I epically do not care about this. Um, I was like, how did this make it into the newspaper? And um, I just like the, the sort of narrative around who the police are does seem to be moving away from that kind of tidiness or like one man can save the day. Yeah, no question. I, no, I, t- I totally agree with you. Um, and I think uh, another area of improvement that I've seen is that, you know, there's so many um, initial reports in mainstream newspapers when there is a police shooting that seem to almost copy the police report word for word. But so many of these reports have been exposed as the fiction that they are that newspapers are beginning to put that kind of language and that kind of scrutiny into those initial reports um, and on television as well. So I, I agree with you. I think that's, um, that is a positive step. And I, hope, and I think your word messy is, is appropriate. I mean, it's, it's, it, they're they're taking more care to disclose the messiness of uh, the circumstances surrounding these shootings and how long it takes to actually ascertain the facts. Related to that, you you mentioned earlier about newsrooms and Dean Baquet, um, you know, who's the head of the New York Times, and, and um, you know, we discussed publishing industry and journalism and how diverse or not diverse it was with a lot of guests over over the years of this podcast: Jennifer Baker, Aisha Pande, uh, Mira Jacob, Jess Rao. Uh, just to name a few, anecdotally among Facebook friends, I know that Jennifer has moved on to an editorial position at Amistad Books, which is a, a part of HarperCollins, and Lisa Lucas recently became senior vice president at Knopf Doubleday after heading the National Book Awards. What's your feeling about the status of diversity in publishing in awards and in reviewing these days? Well, certainly in, in um, awards and, and reviewing, we're seeing definitely seeing more diversity. But just to touch for a minute, on diversity within the publishing houses. You, you, you named some people. I just want to point out, I think it's important to remember that late 90s, even as recent as 2000, there were seven or eight imprints uh, at main, mainstream publishing houses that were created to address the needs of African-American writers and readers and uh, adjacent uh, people who were interested. Um, they included One World, Amistad, Jump at the Sun, Strivers Row, Walk Worthy, Harlem Moon, uh, and I think there were even others. Right now, I believe of those, um, Amistad is still standing and possibly One World. So we had this conversation 20 years ago and we said, uh, oh, and the other similarity is those imprints were run by brilliant black women in publishing. You know, Anita Diggs, Janet Hill, uh, Melody Guy, Andrea Davis Pinckney, some of the smartest minds in publishing were brought in to, to run those imprints. And we were very excited and we were very happy. And we were saying, this is diversity in publishing. We're, we're getting there. We have smart people in these positions. Those imprints are gone. History is sort of repeating itself with these publishers now saying, in wake of George Floyd, in wake of Black Lives Matter, we see you black readers. We see you black writers and editors. We're going to do it again. 
Uh, and obviously they did something wrong the first time, or it was window dressing, or it was PR. Uh, and so I think if we are informed by recent publishing history, we have to regard all of this with healthy uh, skepticism and say it's, it's way too soon to celebrate it. That's so interesting because that is exactly what Aisha said when she was on the show. So do you remember this? She said, like, look, we've gone through this period of expansion before and then and then it gets cut back. I don't view this necessarily as a lasting change. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's way it's way too early to see. Uh, and it also I mean, those books are are dependent upon how well they are promoted within African-American uh, constituencies and outside of African-American constituencies. You know, there's a phrase in the black community. There's uh, there's black people famous and there's white people famous, right? So there are writers who are celebrated uh, in, in our communities. And then, you know, after their eighth book, <laughs> you know, they, they publish a book and white people go, wow, look at this new author. This is great. We love, we, we love her, you know, and, and she's been doing this work a long time. So, uh, and to me, that, that points to the shortcomings of, of publishing and, and publishing professionals. So I'm always going to be um, a, a, a pretty harsh critic of their performance. Uh, in terms of diversity in awards, one reason we're seeing greater diversity is because uh, the judges are more diverse than they used to be. And that's, that's very positive, I think. Uh, a number of my uh, friends and colleagues who are also writers have served as judges in recent years, and I think that's, that's pretty uh, wonderful. Uh, what, what was the other part we did? We, oh, reviews. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally noticing the diversity of reviewers um, uh, especially in the New York Times. It's really changed uh, in the last year or so, and I think it's great. The other thing they're doing differently uh, is they're not just assigning, say, African-American reviewers to review books by African-American writers. They're going beyond that. Uh, and that's kind of new. It's kind of new, and it, it's refreshing, and I hope it continues. Yeah, I agree. Like, I felt like there was a period of time where I could sort of pin, you know, I'd be like, oh, debut woman writer of color will be reviewed by freelance critic, also woman yes. of color, yes, perhaps yes. with ostensible cultural similarity, but perhaps no <laughs> deep understanding. Um, yeah, there you, you go. Know, I That's was it. that critic a couple times. Like, yeah. I can remember, um, yeah, like getting assigned to review like um, like books connected to India where yes. there would be like an assumption that that I had some understanding yeah. and maybe I had like marginally more, but by but right. my family's Sri Lankan Tamil. And so I wasn't always wasn't always making it there. And so publishing is a is an industry that's run by I mean, it's run by English majors. And so then you have all this right, the the sort of boutique, um, these jobs that as, for so long assumed that people could afford not to be paid um, and even certain um, book review assignments can be like that. Judging um, is often, uh, right, it's termed a labor of love. Um, right. <laughs> and um, like, yeah, that's not yeah. exactly right. Like someone's yeah. paying, you know, you're paying with your, you're paying with your time and then you're not being compensated. So the ability, people, people sort of moving to make those even nominally um, compensated, I think has been helpful. Um, and, and the diversity of assignments that you're talking about, I think I, I really have appreciated like sometimes to be like a really smart take from someone who has an affinity for a text that wouldn't be obvious or that is dare I say, like aesthetic and not necessarily just based on um, like assumed cultural similarity has been a joy. Yeah. You know, I, I assigned those reviews for years, you know, as, as an editor at uh, Washington Post Book World. And it's a fine line. Um, I remember being a, um, a contributor to an anthology of work by young black writers. This, this was years ago, and I was a young black writer uh, at the time. And I remember reading this one review, and I just couldn't... It was in a major publication. I couldn't figure out how 
uh, this particular white man was assigned to review uh, an anthology of of young black men writing on love and violence. I think was the theme of the anthology, and I, I couldn't I couldn't figure it out. So it, it's tough because the editor might have said, "Well, I don't want to pigeonhole this book. I don't want to, you know, assign a young black male writer who writes about love and violence because, you know, he might say, "Oh, why are you calling me? Is this the only thing I can review?" You know. So, but then on the other hand, you can go you can go too far in the other direction, and the reviewer knows absolutely nothing about, you know, what, what he's been asked to comment on. So it, it's tough. I'm, sympath- I'm sympathetic because I've been on both sides of, of that fence. Yeah, and I think this just gets back to the messiness I was talking about before, which, of course, is also a thing in our political lives. So going to switch tax here to politics. So when we last spoke, um, my God, Trump was president. And now uh, it's Biden. And he won with significant support from the black community, particularly in the now um, famous South Carolina primary. And he chose a black vice president. He promised to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court. But how has he done in terms of promoting specific reforms to policing nationally? And and what should he be doing that he isn't? Well, I I don't think I think he's been pretty tepid. Um, um, particularly um, even in engaging the, the conversation or the concept or the possibility of defund the police and, and, and what that means. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I never expected anything else uh, from him. I mean, this is, this is the dilemma of the African-American voter. I mean, for the most part, the Republican Party is repulsive. Uh, the Democratic Party depends on us, but takes us for granted once we uh, get them in office. I didn't expect uh, anything different from him or from his vice president, um, frankly. Uh, so I, I, I'm not sure what he will do. I don't think he's done much so far. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I'm an intellectual. I, I read and write books. So my, my impulse is always to say he needs to read. He needs to consult with people who are, who are doing this work in the field, people like uh, Ruth Ann Gilmore. Uh, there's, a, there's a brilliant book out right now uh, called Halfway Home, uh, by Reuben Miller. They're, they're these people, they, they think about this all day and they know so much more about it than say I do. Uh, and I think there needs to be ways for uh, people in government to engage the thoughts and the research of the people who are out there doing the work. I'm not seeing that so far. So Jabari, um, I, uh, I listen to all kinds of podcasts uh, about politics in order to prepare for this show, including ones that I don't necessarily agree with. And so I, I listen to this as what I would call the old white guy podcast, <laughs> but there are still Democrats. Um, so this is like James Carville and Al Hunt, who are two war horses yes. of like the, you know, sort of centrist Democratic movement. And they really hate defund the police. And they talk about it every single episode of their show. And I think that this narrative has started to gain momentum in sort of centrist Democratic and, and probably also mostly white circles, right? Where they're pointing at the, the New York mayoral election where a guy who was black but also but opposed the, that narrative won. And they're saying, look, Democrats can't talk about this. It's going to kill them in the midterms, all this sort of stuff. So I want to play a passage of them talking about this and then see how you react and what you think about what they're saying. All right, James, let's start with the issue of crime. Violent crime declining for years has seen an uptick in the final Trump years and indications of a surge this year in big cities, at least, New York, Chicago. And Republicans, while decrying this, are actually celebrating. They see this as a big winner for them. It strikes me it's a legitimate worry that Democrats are divided and even incoherent on this. There's still a defund the police uh, 
part of that of the of the Democrats, not very big, but they make a lot of noise. That's not a very welcome message in a crime surge. No, it's not. And it is, it is a small minority of the Democratic Party. And we have to, uh, if anybody wants to do anything, you know, we all complain about the 94 crime bill. Well, look at the crime 10 years before that passed and then 10 years after it. And, you know, maybe there are some things in there in, in some of the sentencing stuff was, was ad- admittedly uh, harsh. But, the, you know, if we'd have kept the assault weapons ban, I guarantee you that there'd have been a lot less people dead today. And the Democrats have to be very aggressive because, remember, we had declining crime rates in this country from the early 90s up until the last year of Trump's administration. It always been Democrat-run cities, or as they call it, Democrat-run cities. And what changed was Trump and his lawlessness and his sort of green light for everybody else to be lawless. And I, I think the Democrats have to be aggressive on this issue. Um, do those guys get paid to do that podcast? Uh, yeah, they have ads from Magic Spoon and all sorts of stuff. <laughs> what a scam. That's a nice hustle they got going there. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I, I mean, it's just lightweight, lightweight thinking. And also, uh, you know, they they began with a discussion of policing, maybe ostensibly, but immediately uh, went into crime statistics. And what really is the issue here is not crime. It's policing and the nature of policing and how policing is being conducted. So without a rigorous critique of how policing is conducted in uh, taxpaying communities in the inner city, it's an incomplete conversation. Um, and I would, you know, I'm, I'm going to risk submitting that neither man is remotely qualified to comment on those conditions and probably has never been or hasn't recently been in an inner city African-American community. Uh, and part of the ask, you know, you know, one of the critiques inherent in defunding the police is not to uh, doesn't involve stripping the police of all budgetary resources whatsoever. It's about reallocating resources that are currently given to policing that might uh, be put in things like social work, for example, and other ways to better serve the community. Because what we have now, we have police in schools. We have police going on calls that you know mental health workers need to be going on instead. Uh, and in order to make those things possible, resources have to be reallocated. Uh, and, you know, defund the police becomes this, this convenient phrase for encapsulating all of the changes that need to take place. And, you know, crime is really important, right? But crime is, is but one aspect of, of law and order. And, and I think that uh, the conversation has to acknowledge that from the beginning. It has to take a comprehensive view before veering off in whatever direction they went in there uh, in order to mollify their, their sponsors and and uh, earn their paychecks. Yeah, I mean, that's what scares me about the conversation as it's starting to happen within the Democratic Party is that those ideas that you suggested are totally reasonable. Like, hey, let's let's not send police out on mental health calls. Let's start figuring out other ways to do this policing. I feel like that energy for that is starting to get dissipated. Now, I don't know, Sugi, what's happening in Minneapolis. I mean, that's sort of, uh, you know, where they actually were going to enact some reforms. What's happening there? It is stalled. I mean, I would... I- as we're talking, I'm thinking about, you know, in Minneapolis this week, Darnella Frazier, who recorded the video of Derek Chauvin's murder of George Floyd, that brave kid, right? Her uncle was killed this week in a high-speed chase. 
that was where he was an, as far as I understand, an innocent bystander, just like driving nearby. And the police were involved in this high speed pursuit. And then after this accident, you know, they terminated pursuit. But, like, you know, where is the investigation into that? And I say this, Whitney, you probably remember there was a high speed chase in front of my house that totaled a car that involved the cops that like ended in like a manhunt, a mini manhunt in my neighborhood. I have no idea what happened. Like I saw cops laughing at the destruction that their, ch- their chase had caused. Um, I would also like an investigation of that. I, I just like, why are, why are civilians collateral damage? And that's acceptable. And for so long, it has been our black neighbors and our black neighborhoods that have been acceptable collateral damage. And like, police are running amok. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. And I, I mean, I think that's where the conversation needs to be centered. What is happening inside of communities that the police are charged with protecting? So last time we had you read a poem in which a childhood experience of yours appeared and uh, as part of a demonstration, you'd been handcuffed by Officer Friendly uh, visiting the childhood classroom and that image of the cuffs um, became part of your writing. It was a, a demonstration of policing. And I wonder how you're thinking about your experiences of the past year how those experiences are making their way into your work and and how the questions that drive your work have changed if they have. Well, it's it's interesting uh, because I've been, I've been shut in. I haven't been to my office on campus since uh, March, 2020. So I haven't been on campus at all. So, you know, um, being very much inside, um, I, I think the work has turned somewhat interior. Right, because I'm not engaging with the the larger world as much uh, directly, um, and I think that in terms of say the the pandemic, for example, um, it has. I, I think I've mentioned it in a, in a couple of essays uh, that I'm working on for a book of essays, but I didn't linger on it, and it was almost tangential uh, to the subject matter of the essays, and except for those two pieces, it it really has gone without mention and my work over the last year. And I think part of it is because for me, uh, it's too soon. I, I have a lot to absorb and, and digest. And I'm sure at some point, you know, it's gonna begin to, to make its way into the work. Um, and, you know, on a, on a certain level, I'm surprised that it hasn't done so much because I've been kind of following other people and talking to other writers and I'm kind of amazed that people can jump right on this stuff. And then, you know, you immediately begin to see it manifest. Um, and. In this instance, that has not been me. <laughs> so I, I think um, I think it will happen, but I, I think it's still it's still germinating before I can really get to it. We hear you have a novel coming out in January. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about it and like give us a sneak preview for a special, you know, sort of 100th episode. You know, look forward. Yeah, let's see. I'll give you a few paragraphs of it, and you can edit it as you see fit. Um, it is set in 1852. It's called Yonder. Uh, it'll be published in January uh, by Simon and Schuster. Uh, it's available for pre-order now. And um, I, I, the, I guess the fundamental question um, that animates the novel is: What if you met someone and uh, it became clear to both of you that you belonged together? This was your, for lack of a, a better phrase, your soulmate. This is the person you really want to be with. And you have no control over that. Uh, there, are, there are other people who have control over that and get to, to, and get to determine 
who you can be with. Uh, and that's, that's sort of the question of the novel. Um, people placed in that dilemma and responding to it in various ways. So, um, let's see. Rain had been falling for hours. Perhaps fall is too gentle a word. It was the kind of downpour that leaves scars, grooves, and dents in the earth. I shivered in my chains, blinking rapidly as it came down in sheets and pellets. With silent Mary's broth coursing through my innards, I had regained sufficient strength to hold myself in a sitting position, resting my head against the post. I had only to be alive until daybreak, and Green would allow me just enough freedom to resume my life of bondage. Soaked to the bone, I awaited the dawn while considering the looming paradox of my situation, what little I had to live for. In the distance, the splintered gray boards of our cabins appeared to tremble and dissolve in the wet. The resulting cloud of grayness, murky and unsettled, gradually took on new shapes, outlines of boys and girls. Struck dumb, I watched while they marched down the corridor of the quarters toward me before veering sharply and proceeding toward the plantation borders. Clad in garments I had never seen, nothing like our sackcloth and threadbare cast-offs. They passed me in shades of gray, nearly close enough to touch. I had thought of my ancestors as ancient, with a history of torment etched on their weathered faces. But these were children, ranging in age from five harvests to fifteen, with gleaming faces and vigorous frames. I didn't understand their youthfulness. I understood only that they had been in the world before I came to it, and that they now belonged to some other place. Occasionally, a boy or girl would pause and look at me, then rejoin the procession without missing a step. They walked unsullied through the mud, as smoothly as if they were gliding on cushions of air. I called to them, but any sound I made was lost in the fury of the gale. Thank you so much. What a treat to get a preview of that. So we will remind our listeners to pick up Jabari's work, poetry, nonfiction, writing for children, and as you just heard, fiction, available for pre-order now. Um, his most recent book of poetry is Stop and Frisk. And Yonder, which you just heard a snippet of, is coming this January. Jabari, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And that's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Andrea Tudhope. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. And please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That's how other people find the show. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the fiction nonfiction podcast page is listed under the Lithub Radio tab. We'll post a link to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can also find video of this interview at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel, and on our website at fnfpodcast.net. Happy 100th episode, reading to everyone, and thanks for being with us for these first four years. Thank you.